All right, so today we are going to do something a little bit different. Um, this is a one-off class. It's not really a one-off class, it's a two-off class. plan on doing two different classes uh, on eschatology. <clears throat> Does anybody know what eschatology is? Okay, study of end times. Does anybody like eschatology? No. Okay, some of you like eschatology, some of you may not like eschatology, and that, that's actually probably pretty accurate. That's kind of what I see, that you either love eschatology, it makes you excited, it's interesting, uh, you're, you, this is something that you want to do, or eschatology is kind of one of those things that you left behind in the Left Behind books. That was actually an intended pun. Anyways, you like that one? Okay. Anyways, um, so eschatology is a study of end times. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do irenic theology. And when irenic theology, you may or may not know that term, is to present both sides of a case fairly and accurately. How often have you heard your view presented in a way that you would never present it? Did it ever happen? Someone says that this is what such and such believe, and you're that such and such, and you're like, well, that's kind of what I believe, but not really. That's kind of a caricature. And when it wasn't, it was presented in such a weak way that, of course, it seemed absurd. This is called a straw man. A straw man is when you build up someone's position and make it somewhat resembling, but make it really weak and set it on fire and say, aha, the system is weak. I've destroyed it. The opposite of a straw man is a steel man which is when you present someone else's view with the strongest arguments possible. Sometimes you even strengthen their argument to say, this is the strongest form of it, and yet I still disagree. And so that's what Irenic theology is. It's presenting uh, second and third order doctrines in the strongest cases so that we can really consider them and really think about them. Now, I said second and third order. The first order doctrines are doctrines like the Trinity, doctrines like the gospel, those kind of things, right? You don't want to be opening yourselves up to those kind of heresies. Not that we don't want to consider them, but we don't want to be opening ourselves and unnecessarily exposing people to things that are dangerous and hurtful. But second order doctrines, these are doctrines that divide church from church. The difference between a Methodist and a Baptist and a Lutheran and a Reformed Baptist and so forth and so on, right? One case and point example of this is infant baptism versus believer's baptism. It is possible but very difficult to function in a church where people are wanting to baptize infants and other people are not wanting to baptize infants. There can be some conflict. And so these second-order doctrines often cause us to have to have different churches. But we still love them. We still care for them. But we have to end up uh, having different churches. A third-order doctrine is a doctrine that is not unimportant. It is. But we can disagree about this, and it's not a first-order doctrine, meaning you're not saved. It's not a second-order doctrine, meaning you can't function as a church together. It's a third-order doctrine, meaning let's agree to disagree, or let's discuss and have fun. But we're not going to throw you out. You're not a heretic. You're not someone who's divisive. You're not someone who is questioning, we're questioning their salvation about, so forth and so on. And so third-order doctrines are like eschatology, for the most part. We always like to say around here, we don't divide about eschatology. Well, except unless you get really, really weird. There are some views uh, called full preterism, for an example, that actually go about denying that there is a resurrection. Well, that's heresy. I mean, that literally, the Bible says, if you deny the resurrection, you have 
denying the faith, that you are a heretic. So uh, we, for the most part, don't divide about eschatology unless you go that far. And so what we're going to be talking about today is uh, the need for ironic theology, the need for charity, and we're going to specifically be thinking about eschatology in its premillennial and all-millennial perspectives. Let me just say one other thing about charity, about this ironic theology concept. One of the reasons that doing this, I think, is helpful is because oftentimes we are arrogant, or we can become arrogant. We oftentimes have a view, and we think that everyone else who doesn't agree with us is simply unintelligent or evil. And the reason we think they're unintelligent or evil is because we often are ignorant. We often don't actually understand their view. We don't understand their perspective. And so since we don't understand their perspective, and since the only thing we have our working theory of their perspective is a straw man version, we can't believe that any honest person would ever believe such a foolish thing. And so then we think they must be evil, right? Because they believe something that's so obviously wrong. But that's not charity, and that's not kind. And oftentimes it shows you more about you than it is about them. If intelligent, godly people have held to a view that you disagree with and you think that they're all stupid or evil, that's probably a big indication that you are ignorant and that you have some gaps of knowledge about this particular issue. And so let's, let's dive in to the various types of millennial thinking. Now, what are we talking about? When I say millennial, what is a millennium? What, what does millennial mean? Anybody know? Thousand years, okay. Where did that come from, Dorothy? Christ's thousand year reign. Where does the Bible talk about this? What book? Book of Revelation, chapter twenty. I think it's six times the word a thousand years is mentioned. So there are various views about what this millennium that the Bible describes in the book of Revelation, chapter twenty, is. And the views are, they go like this. There's all-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and post-millennialism. Now, this should not be confused with tribulationalism, which can be pre-trib, pre-tribulationalism, mid-trib, mid-tribulationalism, in-between-trib, pre-wrath, and you have post-tribulationalism. The tribulation view is asking when does the rapture, and by the way, that's not a bad word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ will snatch, in the Latin rapazzo, which we get the word rapture from, snatch his church away, and they will meet him in the sky. Nothing wrong with that word. Okay? So the question is, when does that snatching away occur? Under the tribulationalism, there's pre-tribulational, before the tribulation, God snatches up the church. This is the left behind books. Many, many people in the dispensationalist camp believe this. Pretty much only people in the dispensationalist camp believe this. But it's pre-tribulational. Then you have mid-tribulational. In the middle of the tribulation, in the three and a half years, boom, they're going to be snatched up. There's pre-wrath view. Almost 80% of the view, almost 80% of the tribulation, or sometime after the halfway point. But before the end, he's going to snatch us up. And then there's post-tribulationalist. The church will go through the entire tribulation, and at the very end, he will snatch his church up. Hey, we're not talking about that today. Nothing that I'm saying has anything to do with tribulationalism. We're talking about millennialism. Now, there are three views of millennialism. There's an all-millennial view. There is a post-millennial view, and there's a pre-millennial view. Hopefully, this isn't the first time you've heard these terms. Okay? Now, what do these terms mean? 
The all-millennial view means all as a negation, no millenniums. A very bad name. Why might that be a bad name? Why all millennialism is a terrible name? Any ideas? You know what atheism is? Atheism, a negates theism, means you don't believe in God. Well, why might all millennialism, no millennialism, be a bad idea, be a bad label? Well, yeah, it, it, it's, it can be misleading. And the reason it can be misleading is the Bible talks about a millennium. So how are you going to have a view that says no millennium? We have to interpret Revelation 20 somehow, which describes Christ reigning for a thousand years. So going around saying there is no millennium is not a good idea. Now, again, we don't want to fight about terms. That's not actually what it means. What all millennialism is saying is the millennial kingdom that's often viewed as the premillennial view, they say it's not true. That there's not going to be this future kingdom where Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand literal years or some period of time in between the first coming and the second coming in the eternal state. They say that's not true. There's only a first coming and a second coming in eternal state. So the two-age view. First coming, we're in it right now. Christ comes back, he ends that stage, and then we go into the new heavens, new earth. See that? Where's the millennial kingdom? All millennial. There is no millennial kingdom. Kind of. Actually, the millennial kingdom is the first coming. In between the first coming and the second coming, they say that is the millennial kingdom. It's more realized eschatology. It's more now millennial, if you think about it. It's not denying a millennium. It's saying we are in the millennium. Christ is currently reigning. This is the thousand years prophesied in the book of Revelation. So that's the all-millennial camp. Now, post-millennialism says, no, that's not true. There's, there are three stages. There is the church age, where the church spreads after the first coming when he ascended, and the church has been spreading. And we're in that first stage. Then there's a golden age of the church that's coming. That's the millennial kingdom. And then Christ is going to come post the millennium, which is going to be the golden age of the church where the church uh, rules over all people, and everyone basically becomes Christian, and the world becomes Christianized. Then after that, there's going to be a brief time of rebellion, and then Christ is going to return. That's post-millennialism. Okay? And then there's the pre-millennial view, which we're going to talk about today. The pre-millennial view is that Christ comes back before the millennium, pre-millennial, right? Christ comes back before the millennium, establishes an earthly kingdom for a long period of time, or some say a thousand actual years. There's a brief rebellion, and then we have the eternal state coming in. So those are the three views. Now, before we go into uh, some biblical text and a few other things, any questions on that? Any questions on Iranic theology? Any questions on millennial views or anything we talked about? Okay. Just out of curiosity, is anybody who's willing to answer this question post-millennial? Any post-millennialists here? No? That's fine. Any all-millennialists here? Okay, we got one. Two. Two and a half. One and a half. I'm guessing the rest of you, well, any pre-millennial here? Okay. Any pan-millennial here? Anybody know what a pan-millennial is? It'll all pan out. I have no idea. That's what pan-millennial is. I just don't know. Okay. Now, um, let me say one other thing about this. There's a difference between dispensational premillennial and historic premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism adds a lot of the dispensational distinctives about, and, and there's a whole wide spectrum, but Israel is not the church. Uh, a lot of the uh, pre-rapture views, pre-tribulational rapture views are combined in this, and there's the 
the view that classic, classic dispensationalists said that only Jews were going to reign on the earth and the church was going to reign in heaven. Most don't do that. There's a whole lot of baggage that comes in with dispensational uh, premillennialism. One particular baggage, maybe, uh, would be the idea that a literal temple, not all dispensations believe this, but many have in the past, that the literal temple of Ezekiel is going to be reinstituted. There's going to be a third literal temple. Everybody's heard this, right? This isn't news to anybody. And there's going to be reinstituting sacrifices and all this other stuff. That's dispensational premillennialism. It's very important not to confuse that with premillennialism. Premillennialism is, has nothing to do with a temple. You can add to the temple. You can add temples into your millennium. Right? You can do a bunch of stuff with this millennial and add these dispensational uh, things to it, but that's not necessarily millennialism. So there's a distinction between dispensationalist uh, premillennialism and historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism is saying the kind of millennialism that was held to way before dispensationalists ever came on the scene in the 1800s with Darby. So let's talk about that. Why is this called, and this will go into our first argument, why is the historic premillennialist view called historic premillennialism, right? You don't have historic amillennialism. You don't have historic postmillennialism. You just have the view called historic premillennialism. Well, there's two reasons. One is to distinguish itself from the more popular version of the dispensational premillennial. So it's historic in the sense of in comparison to dispensationalism. This view's been around for the last 2,000 years. Dispensationalist premillennials have been around for the last 150 years, okay? So that's one reason. But there's an even more significant reason why this is called historic premillennialism. It's called historic premillennialism is because it's pretty much universally agreed that this was the predominant view for the first 300 years. If you were to go back 300 years in the first 300 years of the church and you were to go into your average church that we can reconstruct, they would have believed in premillennialism. Even the person who popularized all millennialism, Augustine, apparently first held to premillennialism. So this is the historic view. Now, interesting enough, even though I say it's historic, and pretty much every extant author that we have in the first 200 years was premillennial, there is one statement by Justin Martyr that suggests that it was not the universal view. It was just the most popular view. Because Justin Martyr says that we all believe in the premillennial view. Except there are some orthodox among us who have who err like the heretics, who believe other things. We actually don't know what those other things were, but they certainly were not premillennialists, historic premillennialists. So that one statement does tell us that Justin Martyr knew of good people who didn't even agree about the historic premillennialism view even in the first 200 years. So I don't want to overstate the case of historic premillennialism. However, that's all we have. Every person that we actually know of actually believed in historic premillennialism. Let me give you some names. Papias. Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, a whole bunch of other names you probably don't know. But those are old names. Let me give you some more modern people that you may know. Let me know if you know any of these people. John Gill. Anybody know that guy? Gill? Baptist? You don't know Gill? Somebody knows Gill. All right, John Gill, Robert Shank, Charles Spurgeon. Anybody like Charles Spurgeon around here? He a heretic? Is he unintelligent? No. Charles Spurgeon, George Eldon Ladd, Albert Moeller, the briefing. Anybody? John Piper, Francis Schaefer, D.A. Carson, Gordon Clark, Brian Chappell, Charles H. Henry, John MacArthur. Some people call John MacArthur the 13th Apostle. That was a joke. But John MacArthur holds this view. Robert Murray McShane, Andrew Bonner, Thomas Goodwin, John Bunyan. Remember Bunyan fan? 
John Bunyan held this view. Cotton Matter, August Toplady, J.C. Ryle, Benjamin Keach. By the way, Benjamin Keach is the one who's responsible for uh, pretty much bringing the Reformed Baptists on the map. He was one, he, he's the one who produced a, a catechism called the Orthodox Catechism. He was one of the original Reformed Baptists. John and Charles Wesley, Wayne Grudem, Craig Keener, and Merrick Erickson, just to name a few. And here's an interesting one that you may not know. It's really interesting. William Twist. Anybody heard that name before? William Twist? You may not have heard that name. That's fine. Does anybody know of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Heard of that? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the assembly, the moderator of that assembly, so the chief divine, the chief theologian there, his name was William Twist, and he himself was a historic premillennialist. And there was someone who was on that assembly that, that said this quote, most of the chief divines here are expressed chilius. Chilius is just another term for millennialist. Here's the point of that. A lot of people believe this. This is not some strange view. It's not some view that only came out with Darby and the dispensationalist view. It's not even attached to that necessarily. It's not a view that's just known among the Wesleyans or the Armenians. This view has a long pedigree. A lot of good people held this view from a lot of different traditions, whether reformed or not. Does that make it right? No. I could give you another list of names of good, solid people from both Armenian and Reformed traditions that believed in all millennialists. And I can give you some names that believed in post-millennialists. The point is, though, this is not something that we can easily dismiss and simply say, they're out for lunch, they're crazy, no good Reformed people will ever believe this, right? No, good people have always believed this. So why did they believe this? Well, let's move to the biblical case. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to present you a steel man version of historic premillennialism. I'm going to do. Now, if you are militantly all millennial or just passionately all millennial, this may feel a little uncomfortable for you because I'm going to present the strongest case for historic premillennialism that I can. I'm not going to constantly poke holes in it and try to destroy it. No, I'm going to present it as strong as I possibly can. And I hope that if you are all millennials, you will at least consider the case. Feel its strength. And hopefully, even if you disagree, which is perfectly fine, in fact, I'd be a little concerned if you became convinced in one teaching in 45 minutes, but at the very least, you might have some charity and not look down on other people who hold this view and not simply think they're simpletons and don't know the Bible. A good case can be made. The next time I come back, we're going to talk about all millennialism, and I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to present the all millennial case. So for you, historic premillennial, you will be in the hot seat, and you will feel uncomfortable, and you have a time to have charity toward others as well. Okay, so let's get our Bibles going because we have a lot of text to go through. All right, Revelation chapter 19. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. As we turn there, are there any questions or comments or concerns about anything we talked about in the last 20 minutes? Okay, Revelation chapter 19. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a brief sketch. I think it, for the sake of time, we have so many texts to go through that I probably don't want to read all of this. But here's what I want to do. I want to kind of summarize this. So if your Bible has little headings, this will be more easy for you. If not, you can just follow along. So if you look at verse 1 through 3, we can summarize this section as Babylon the Great has fallen. Verse 1, I heard a great great voice in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged on her the blood of his 
servants at her hand. Again, hallelujah, for her smoke rises up forever and ever. This is the destruction of the world system. Do you remember in the book of Revelation where the saints of God say, how long, how long until you avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? Does anybody remember that? From the Revelation chapter 6, you remember that? The, the souls under the altar? This is the fulfillment of that. How long, O oh Lord? He says, wait a little while until the rest of your brothers be slain. Well, now we're at the end of history, right? Right now the saints are trying, how long? This text is telling you, not any longer. Did everybody see that? The great whore, which is Babylon the Great, the evil world system is destroyed. It smoke goes up forever and ever. It's not coming back. When is that going to happen? Come on, somebody tell me. When is Babylon the Great going to be destroyed? When will the saints finally say, finally, hallelujah, no more waiting? What event? Somebody help me. What event is this? When is the world system going to be destroyed? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Yes. The day of the Lord, which is his second coming. Everybody see that? Everybody see that, right? This is not the expansion of the churches and evangelism. We're not in the post-millennial kingdom here. Okay? This is the day of the Lord. Hope everybody sees that. All right, let's keep going. Six through nine. I'm going to skip down to nine for the sake of time. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are true sayings of God. When is the marriage supper of the Lamb? When do we get married to Jesus? Does anybody remember a parable about some virgins that were, bank, that were uh, waiting ten virgins? Remember? Five were wise. Five were foolish. The bridegroom came. The foolish went to buy. And the wise went in to where? The bridegroom of the Lamb. That's the second coming, right? This is the other side of the second coming. So the, the one side is the destruction of the wicked. The other side is the reception of the righteous. The righteous go in and marry the Lord. This is the marriage of the Lamb. So two indications already in the text that we are at the second coming. Hope everybody sees that. All right, look at verse 11. Somebody read verse 11. Okay, who's that? Jesus. Jesus Christ. No question. Look at verse 13. He is called the Word of God. That's Jesus. All right, verse 14. And the armies were which the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are those people? Who are the armies that follow Jesus? Who's Jesus' armies? Angels. Okay, anybody else? Saints. Saints and angels. Right? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. So we know, cross-referencing other passages, that the Lord comes back with his mighty angels, and the Lord comes back with his saints. The armies are the saints and angel army. Everybody see this? See how all this is fitting together? This is the second coming. Okay. Now, verse 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that would smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And on... And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh written a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. No question, it's Jesus. If you look at the wine press here, you can go to Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, right after he threatens hell, the smoke goes up forever and ever, right? They have no rest day or night. Right after that, it talks about two events where a, a, a figure like the Son of Man is told to put in his sickle and reap. 
Then he's told in to put in the sickle and reap a second time. And that second time, he's to, gra- he's to gather the clusters and he's to put it in the wine press of God and smash them. And the blood goes up. Anybody remember that text? Maybe? Okay. The wine press of God is another picture of the second coming. When is God going to put evil people in his wine press and smash them like grapes? At the second coming. So all of the language here is pointing to the second coming. And, and this really shouldn't be for argument. Pretty much nobody disagrees that this is the second coming language. Okay? Most people that disagree with this are postmillennialists, who they can't have this being the second coming. And we'll see in a while, in a second, why they can't have this being the second coming. Because they want to argue for a different view. But for the most part, I think we all know the second coming. All right, look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying unto all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together for the supper of the great God, that ye shall eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, then that set on them, that the flesh of all men, both small and uh, both free and bond, both small and great. Okay, so what is this final battle? What do we call the final battle between God and Wicked armies. This, huh? Armageddon. Armageddon. Boom. That's what you have right here. This is Armageddon. This is the Great Tribulation. We're in the time of the Great Tribulation. We're in the time at the end, the great travailing of the woman. This is great battle that's going to happen. And in that great battle, Christ is going to come back and destroy his enemies, which is exactly what you see here. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Who's the beast? Okay, you're saying Satan? He's, he's connected to Satan. But there's an unholy trinity. There's the beast, a false prophet, and Satan. The fallen world. Okay, you're saying the fallen system. Okay, so the beast in part is the fallen system. That's true. The beast in part is the fallen system. But could the beast be anyone else? Okay, how is he presented here? Look at it. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. That's not on the horse. How is the image of the beast? Anybody see it? Anybody see the image? If, you, if I say draw this for me, I want you to draw this picture. How would you draw it? Would you draw a city next to armies, next to kings? What kind of picture would that be? A city? That doesn't make any sense. The beast here is presented as a person. Do you see that? You have the beast, a person, with kings, the person, with armies. This is a picture of a leader with other leaders ruling armies that are attacking the people of God. Hope you see that. You may disagree that that's what it means, but that's certainly the picture. You would not draw this as a city. You would draw this as a person, and I'll show. I'll prove that to you in a second. Because he's about to be thrown into the lake of fire, and a city is not thrown into the lake of fire. It's a person that's thrown into a lake of fire. He's presented as a person. Good. Uh, why are you connecting this with the Um. So one doesn't need to do that, but what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to argue is I'm trying to get everyone to see that all the language here is things that at least most of us believe are going to happen at the same coming. We believe that the marriage of the Lamb is going to happen at the same coming. We believe that Babylon the Great is going to be destroyed at the same coming. For those who believe in the Antichrist, which I certainly do, and we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for that, the man of lawlessness is going to be destroyed at the second coming. Right? He's going to be revealed at the last times, and it says that he's going to be destroyed by the coming of the Lord. So I'm trying to put all the pieces together and say, look, all of these events happen at the second coming, which tell us that this is the second coming. 
But if you don't want to, if, if one wants to disagree that the beast is here, we can just argue. You can just say that's just another picture of Great Babylon being destroyed. Um, well, no, but so I'm logically accepting that argument, right? That means that Christ would be the cause of the tribulation rather than the freeing of the saints from the tribulation. The tribulation is on the saints, not Babylon. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'll. So here's what I think is going on. The picture is you have the armies of the earth against the armies of the Lord. That's the picture. The armies of the Lord versus the, uh, the, the armies of heaven versus the, the armies of man led by the Antichrist. I think what it, what's going on here is that this is the last stage of Armageddon. If we put scripture to scripture, which we'll see in Zechariah 14 in a second, that what you have here is that the forces of Antichrist are pictured as surrounding Jerusalem and about to destroy Jerusalem. At the very end, Christ comes back with his mighty army, and now you have a face-off between a heavenly army coming from the sky, led by Christ, and an earthly army coming from the ground, uh, led by the Antichrist. And so that, if I were to draw this picture, I'd have Christ bursting through heaven with his army and the forces of earth surrounding Jerusalem, and Christ then facing off and destroying the wicked. No, post-trib. Well, we're at post-trib. This is the end of tribulation. This, that, what I'm describing is actually post-trib. Uh, but but even, even post-trib, it has to do with the rapture. Post-trib has to do with the rapture. So the post-trib... Well, it makes more sense if, if you were saying post-trib. I thought you said we weren't even going to consider that, but this class is about pre-trib. Yeah, we, we're, not, we're not talking about pre-trib at all. We're not talking about tribulation at all. We're not talking... But I'm saying this is a tribulation now. The, again, let me back up here. The pre-trib... Everybody agree, well, I should say everybody. Most people agree that there's going to come a great tribulation led by the Antichrist. The debate is whether the church is going to be there or not. Not whether there are going to be some saints there. Because the scripture clearly defines that there's going to be some saints there. Now, if you're more dispensational minded, which I'm not, but if you are, you say that the church gets raptured up at some time and the saints are millennial, uh, tribulation saints, primarily Jews. But there's no question that there's going to be saints going through that tribulation period, right? And this pictures that those saints, whoever they are, are, in my mind, are being attacked, and then Christ is coming down to rescue them. Yeah, I mean, if you're saying that this is the end of the tribulation, yeah. Sense. yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. This, this is how the tribulation ends, which, going to Second Thessalonians, is the same thing. The Antichrist comes. How does the Antichrist reign end? Christ comes back and destroys the man of law with the, appearing, uh, the presence of his appearing. Any questions on that? Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20. And the beast was taken... And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So this is what I was talking about. Clearly pictured, whether the meaning is that is one thing. The picture is of two people thrown into the lake of fire, alive and being tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which proceeded out of his mouth, and the fowls were filled with the, with the flesh. So you have the two, the beast and the false prophet, thrown into the lake of fire alive. The rest of the armies are slain and eaten by birds. That's the picture. Okay? Now, there's an unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. You have the beast, you have the false prophet, and you have the devil. Anybody notice that the devil was not mentioned? Anybody see that? What happened to the devil? I mean, you, you have these two, but where did the devil? Well, chapter 20. Chapter 20 opens up with the devil. But before we go there, 
hope everybody sees that reasonable person could believe that chapter 19, in fact, almost everyone believes this, by the way. Chapter 19 conveys the second coming of Christ. Everybody see that? A reasonable person could think that chapter 19 just described to you what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. But chapter 20. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now, here's the question. Where are we in history? Where are we? Well, without some kind of indication that we've moved, because remember, chapter divisions are made by man. God didn't have chapter divisions, right? And even if you had chapter divisions, you just read over the next chapter, where are you in time? Without some kind of indication, we would assume that we are in the same time period that we just saw. And I saw, this is the next thing that he saw, which is in the same basic time frame. Okay, so he saw an angel coming down, having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, once again, right now, where are we in history? If you're not prepared for this, if you're not trained, if you're not, you know, dug in, right now, if I just close the book, what would you think? You would think that Christ comes back, he destroys his enemies, he throws two people in a lake of fire, and he throws Satan in the bottom of the pit. Isn't that true? Everybody say that? There's nothing at this point that's indicated that anything else is going on, that we're suddenly jumping some, to some recapitulation of some other point of history. And that's the premillennial's argument. The premillennial's argument is this, that Revelation 20 follows Revelation 19, and there's no reason to think that we have all of a sudden jumped somewhere in history. And I think we have to admit, if we look at verse 1 and 2, there is no indication we jumped in history. Maybe we can read on and see if there's any indication. Let's go. Verse 3. And he cast him into the bottom of and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should not deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So we told the purpose, and we're told that this reversal is going, this, uh, seal, this ceiling is going to be reversed. Now, here we have another issue for the all-millennialist case. And here's the issue. If this is the work of Christ, the sealing of Satan happened at the binding of the strong man, the strong man, which happened at the resurrection. Does anybody notice that the binding is going to be reversed? Everybody see that? It's hinted there. But if you skip down to verse 7, you'll see it happen. Look at this, verse 7. And when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. Wait a second. So Satan was bound at the beginning of the thousand years, and he's loosed. You see the problem? It's a little bit theologically hazardous to say that what Jesus accomplished at the cross will one day be reversed. This is a problem. Okay, this is the problem. And so this leads some people to say, this is not talking about... (laughs) The events that happened at the cross. This is happening. This is talking about an event that happened after his second coming, when he binds Satan by putting him in Hades for a period of time when he reigns on earth, and then that period of time will elapse, and Satan will be unleashed to once again deceive the nations. He was put in there so he can't deceive the nations any longer, and he comes out to do that very thing, which is to deceive the nations. He causes them to come up, try to destroy the holy city. You can look at that in verse seven through nine. They try to attack the beloved city. Fire comes down and consumes them. Everybody see that? Then you have, look at verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast in the fire, the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. 
you have the final judgment now coming to the beast, uh, coming to the devil. So you have the, the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire in the end of chapter 19 and the end of chapter 20. After the millennial, everybody sees that, you have the devil being thrown into that same lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. When did they get thrown in there? Chapter 19, which suggests this comes after. Now, I'm not saying this is an ironclad case, but I'm just trying to give you their case. Now, here is probably the strongest case for the premillennialist view that's actually found in the verses we skipped. Verses 4 through 6. Let's read them. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, of which... Uh, of which they had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had they received his mark upon their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So he sees thrones. And then he sees people sitting on those thrones. And then he zooms in. Who are these people sitting on the thrones? He says, I see them. They are souls that have been beheaded for Christ. That's called a Christian martyr. Amen? Isn't that true? If you get beheaded, you're dead. Right? If you're a soul, you're dead. I don't see souls. I see bodies. If I see a soul of a beheaded person, they are dead. And it says that those souls lived and reigned. So a resurrection is coming back from the dead. Amen? Isn't that true? Now, how are these people killed? Are they killed spiritually or physically? In the text. Are they killed physically or are they killed spiritually? What's that? Physically. So if you die physically and you're resurrected, you're resurrected how? Physically. Everybody see that? So these people died physically for their faith, and it's picturing them resurrecting. <laughs> and the interpretation would be, well, this refers to people who have died, who are resurrected, and then they reign with Christ. And I say, look, this is what you have. This is happening, by the way, during the thousand years. Then, after the thousand years, then there's this great battle. Then you have the resurrection. Now look at this. It gets even better. Look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, perhaps, this is the premillennialist would say, perhaps we could figure out what the resurrection of the saints looks like by looking at what the resurrection of the rest of the dead. You see that? It's the same word. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So maybe we just look at what kind of resurrection they get resurrected to. Maybe they get saved. Maybe it's a spiritual resurrection. Maybe they reign in heaven. It's a spiritual. Okay, let's look. Let's look over. To verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, and whose face earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. There they are. Right? You see that? Verse 12 is the fulfillment of what will happen to the rest of the dead. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged each according to their works. Okay. Well, everybody agree with me that that is referring to a physical resurrection? Right? We know the Bible. The wicked will be physically resurrected. So when it says the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are up, we know the live not again refers to a physical resurrection. But if it says one group of people died and lived, and we're saying, mm, we're not sure about that resurrection, but then we look and it says, the rest of the dead died and lived after a thousand years, and that refers to a physical resurrection. Doesn't it seem likely that the other thing refers to a physical resurrection? Does that make sense? If I say, you will get blah, blah, blah right now, but the rest of the people will get chicken nuggets in a thousand years. What is the blah, blah, blah? Isn't it chicken nuggets? 
Doesn't that make sense? If the only difference is a time period, and we figure out what this person is giving after the time period, we can figure out what was given to this other group in the time prior. This is the argument for the physical resurrection of the saints. And so this is what they would say. This refers to a physical resurrection of believers a, th- a thousand years prior to the resurrection of the wicked. Everyone will be resurrected, but one group gets resurrected prior. Now, one other thing. When does the resurrection of the saints happen? Forget this verse for a second. If you know your Bible, when do the saints resurrect? And it's a hint. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells you. Anybody know? When do believers get their resurrected bodies? Anybody know? Boom! The second coming. First Thessalonians 4 says that very thing. Right? They're weeping because people have died. It says don't weep. You don't have to weep. Because actually the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive will be caught up. So at the second coming of Jesus, the dead in Christ rise. Those who are left will be translated, will be repaso, will be raptured. So it isn't surprising then that if the second coming was described in 19, then chapter 20, which will tell you about events that just about happen and things that are going to happen, describe the resurrection of saints. If the second coming happens, we know the saints are going to begin to be resurrected, and we're resurrected to do what? To dance around? No, to reign. The reason you get a resurrected body is to reign on earth. Right? So there's a logical coherence to all of this. This is, a, in my mind, a strong case. Is it an unsaleable case? I'm not saying that. I'll come back next time and show you some other interpretations of this. Okay? But can we at least admit that a reasonable person can conclude these things? I think a actually very strong case can be made for these things. It is very difficult to see how these cannot be fulfilled uh, uh, in, in a millennial, premillennial kingdom. Now, what people often will argue is this. Look, I think most people will say, look, okay, I meant it. Revelation 20 is a pretty strong case. Like, if I just had Revelation 20, I probably would not be arguing that there isn't a thousand years between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. But that's all you have. And we need to interpret the Bible in light of all of the Bible. And so if this contradicts what the Bible says elsewhere, then your interpretation is wrong. That's usually the all-millennial argument, right? They're not usually going to try to fight you tooth and nail based on Revelation 20, because Revelation 20 is a pretty strong structure of the premillennial. They're saying, look, no, you are, your interpretation is running shipwreck of the rest of the Scripture, meaning that your interpretation of this one verse is wrong. Everybody see that? Which is, by the way, reasonable. If you come to a conclusion in one passage of the Bible that contradicts everything we know about the rest of the Bible, then you're probably wrong about the interpretation of that one passage. Okay? So, fortunately, we are rapidly running out of time. So, let's go to the next strongest passage to at least show you maybe that there are two passages. Please turn over your Bible to Zechariah chapter 14. And we're going to have to skip through this pretty quickly because I want to hit some of these other scriptures. So I might maybe have to summarize some of this stuff. All right, Zechariah chapter 14. When somebody gets there, if you could volunteer to read verse 1 through 5. Okay, Nathan. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle, and the city shall be taken and houses plundered and the women raped. 
not be cut off from the city. Okay, stop there. Stop there. Sorry. So, okay. The day of the Lord cometh. Day of the Lord language. Jerusalem surrounded by nations. See that? The day of the Lord's coming. Jerusalem surrounded by nations. Bad things are happening to these people. But there's half of the city shall be destroyed, but the residue, the remnant of the people, should not be cut off. There's going to be people that are saved. Let's find out how they're saved. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward, and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Adal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come. Okay. Can everybody admit that this sounds like the same coming? This sounds like the events of the same coming. I mean, the, the Lord, it sounds like the Lord's coming. The Mount of Olives, this is the place where Jesus ascended. It said he will descend in the same way that he ascended. I mean, it literally says, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. He's coming in a scene of a great battle and coming to destroy enemies that are besieging Jerusalem. There's a whole lot of connections between this passage and Revelation chapter 19. And that's the point. Now, can someone read verse 6 and 7? Actually, what, how about 6 and 9? Six and nine. 6 and 9. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will be diminished. It shall be one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, it shall happen that Okay, once again, a whole bunch of illusions should be coming to your mind about events that are going to happen in the same coming. That you have cosmological changes, you have Jesus becoming king over the universe, you have living waters spreading out. Think about the end of Ezekiel. This, this all sounds like second coming language. Now, I'm going to skip verses 12 through 15, but just glance there. You should see an obliteration of God's people. This is not a regular battle where people are shooting each other, stabbing each other. No, this is a cosmic Utter destruction from God, which is exactly what we expect to happen at second coming. They're going to completely, it says that their, uh, their mouths will rot away. This is an instant annihilation of them. Okay. So this all looks like the second coming, and nobody should have any problem with anything I've said so far. Now look at verse 16. Somebody read verse 16. So now you have 16? Now, this is when we start to run into problems. Wait a second. Who is left? There wasn't supposed to be anybody that is left. Under all millennialism, Christ comes back. All the wicked are slain. The new heavens, new earth comes out. There's nobody left. Now, some of you are very sharp. Some of you say, well, wait a second. Maybe the, those who are left here refers to believers. The people who survived the second coming, it refers to believers, not unbelievers. Okay. That's reasonable. Look at verse 17. Somebody read verse 17 through 19, and we'll see a problem. 
Brian, you have it? Anybody see a problem? If this is the eternal state, anybody see a problem? Somebody call it out. What's the problem? Why might you not want to say this is the eternal state? Plagues! Plagues and threats and curses on people. This is not what I usually think about happening to my beloved grandma who's resurrected on New Heavens and New Earth. She refuses stubbornly to worship God, so God sends drought on her. I mean, again, is there no other way to interpret this? Sure, there are ways to interpret this and say, okay, well, this is just a figurative description that God will not allow wickedness to break out in the new heavens and new earth, and he describes it by saying he will plague people who do. Right? That's one way. You can also say this is a conflation between the first and second coming, and these are actually first coming judgments. Well, they're not saying that he doesn't exist. They're saying, the text doesn't say that he doesn't exist. They know he exists. They rebel even despite him existing, which is awful. But, and, and I will say, that sounds unreasonable and unrealistic. But you know what also sounds unreasonable, unrealistic? That Satan and a third of the angels in the face of God will rebel, and they did. And something else that sounds unrealistic and unreasonable is to say that Adam and Eve would walk with God and they would believe a serpent. And they did. There's a lot of unreasonable things. Sin is very unreasonable. And these people are acting extremely unreasonable. But I'm simply saying we can do a lot of footwork and we can do a lot of harmony. But let's not claim that we're not doing footwork and harmony because we happen to do some work here. Because this is not usually how we think of the eternal state as people being threatened. Right? And so this is another text. So what I'm saying is there's not just one text. There are other texts that we need to harmonize. And again, I'm presenting their strongest case. So in the little time we have, let's go to Isaiah 24. We'll have to move fast here. So I'm just going to leave this for you to look at. But I'm going to tell you, Isaiah chapter 24 is called the mini-apocalypse. In fact, Isaiah 24 to 27 is the mini-apocalypse. You should read this. If you like eschatology, check this section out. It is super fascinating and super interesting. But we're running out of time. So let's skip down to verse 19. For you, all of you who missed... We're doing ironic theology here. We're presenting the strongest case for the premillennial view. In a future time, we'll look at all millennialism, and we'll look at the strongest case for the all-millennial view. All right, look at verse 19 of Isaiah 24. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall, and it shall not rise again. What does that sound like? Cosmological destruction, that's what it sounds like. And if you read everything up, it looks like the book of Revelation. If you read Isaiah 24 and look at the scholars, this looks like the summary of the book of Revelation. The earth is getting wiped down, people are dying all over the place, and now the earth is getting renewed. Okay, if you go to the sixth seal, you see the same thing. Christ comes back, the earth is destroyed, everyone's hiding in mountains. Cosmological destruction, all things that sound like the second coming. But look, I want somebody to read this. Read verse 21. Those of you have it? No. I'm going to read it. I'm going to, we got to move fast. 
And it shall come to pass on that day that the Lord shall punish the host on high, that are on high, and the kings of the earth that are upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered together in a pit, and they shall be shut in prison, and after many days they shall be visited. Everybody see this? It sounds like an event that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ where the hosts on heaven, those who are in heaven, heavenly beings are judged and thrown into a pit. And earthly beings, kings on earth, are judged and thrown into a pit. And it says that they're going to be there for many days, and after many days they will be punished. This is a parallel text to the book of Revelation chapter 20. Now here's the deal. However you interpret Revelation 20, you should probably do the same thing here. This is the mini-apocalypse, and the things that are described here in Isaiah seem to be the exact same things described in the book of Revelation. So however you interpret Revelation 20, you should also interpret here. But you can see that the plain meaning seems to be events toward the second coming. There's going to be this imprisonment for a period of time for angels and men, which is exactly what you have in the book of Revelation from 19 to 20. So I hope you see the possible parallel text and why some people could look at this and say, hmm, this sounds like this isn't the only, in fact, text in the book of Revelation. Let's go to, skip, skip over, Isaiah chapter 26. We are flying here. We have to move super fast here. Isaiah chapter 26, you're just going to have to believe me. Once again, all the events around this passage sound like they're events that are going to happen at the second coming. So we're going to look at two verses here, and I'm going to open up for questions. If we have any, and we will press forward. Verse 14, they are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore, thou hast visited and destroyed them and made their memory to perish. This is describing something that's going to happen to the wicked. And it says that they're dead and they will not arise. By the way, some Jews, based on passages like this, said that the wicked were not going to rise. We know that's not true because we see elsewhere in other scriptures that the wicked do rise. Okay? But the plain meaning here is that they will not rise, which is strange. Look at verse 19, though. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then verse 21. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Everybody see it? Everybody see why this could possibly be another text that someone could point to? You have a partial resurrection. You have the wicked being denied a resurrection. You have the righteous being given a resurrection. And this all seems to happen around the time of the second coming. Put scripture with scripture. Seems like that for a time period, these people will not be resurrected. That's what's pictured here. For a time period, they'll not be resurrected. And at some future day, according to Daniel and other passages, they will be resurrected. So we have other texts that we simply have completely run out of time. And that's fine. But hopefully, and here was my intent of all of this. It wasn't to convince you of historic premillennialism at all. It was to say that there is a case to be made for this. This is why Charles Spurgeon believed this. This is why John Bunyan believed this. This is why Albert Mola believed this. John Piper, John MacArthur. This is why William Twist, the moderator of the Westminster Confession of Faith, believed this. Good people have believed this. And so when we actually steal man people's position and actually look at the strength of their position, we come to realize that they're not just stupid and they're not just evil. This is why we say we do not divide over eschatology, because those people are not stupid. Those people are not evil. There is a case to be made. Now, next time, I'll present the other side of the case and show you that all millennialists are not bad and evil people, because they have a case to be made, too. These things are difficult. These things are challenging. You have to synthesize tons of passages, right? 
perhaps I showed you a passage today that you didn't even know existed. Because the Bible is really big. you got to go to Zechariah. you got to go to Isaiah. you got to go to Revelation. We didn't get to Luke chapter 20. But you got to synthesize Luke chapter 20, Philippians 3, Isaiah 65. There's tons of passages that you have to synthesize, right? So you can imagine maybe trying to bring all that harmony together, you might misunderstand some things. And if you might misunderstand some things, maybe somebody else might misunderstand some things. And this is why we have charity. This is why we don't say things like, you're not a true believer, or you're just a liberal, or you don't believe the Bible. It's not that you don't believe the Bible. It's that maybe you're confused about some things. Because it's very, very difficult. We have to have charity. We have to understand people's position. We can say, I respectfully disagree. I think you're misunderstanding some of these passages. But it's a whole different game when you actually have gone through those passages, wrestled with those passages, right? And you come to realize that maybe your interpretation of their proof text aren't the best. This will give us so much more charity when they're exegeting our proof text and we say, I don't think that's the best explanation. Because... So some of you who may be premillennialists, you liked everything I said here. And everything felt really good. We can go to 1 Corinthians 15, and you might not like what I say. You might not be so confident. And you might feel that you have to do some things that you wish you didn't have to do to that text. Because it's not so easy when you go to 1 Corinthians 15, when you go to Matthew chapter 25, when you go to Romans chapter 8, when you go to Matthew chapter 13. There's a lot of scriptures that aren't so easy then. And so when you, when you realize this, that I have to do some things that I don't feel so comfortable doing in those texts as a premillennialist or a normalist, then you have a lot more charity. Does that make sense? Everybody see that? You won't just say, oh, you're a liberal. You just don't believe it. Be careful. You got to take another text where you have to do some weird stuff too. It's difficult. God has made it so that sometimes understanding the Bible is difficult. That's okay. That's how God did it. He wants his people to wrestle with it, and I'll just conclude with this. I think he also wants to see if we'll have charity with others. If we're going to be all high and mighty and proud, or we'll say, you know what, I'm one sinner, just like you are, struggling to understand, and I'm going to give you charity. I'm going to know that I'm not all the way there, and maybe you're not all the way there. We're all along for the ride. That's ironic theology. That's charity. That's what we should be doing. So any final questions, comments, concerns? We wrap up. Somebody has to say something. We're not leaving until somebody says something. Something else. Stan? What? I think you presented a great case that there's a second coming. Amen. <laughs> and that is truthfully, if you look at actual, uh, that's a great way to end. If you look at um, eschatological statements in Confessions of Faith, they usually say Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead for that exact reason. Because when you try to nail it point any closer to that, you often have problems. It's difficult to nail it down. You have to have charity in all things. Pastor Neil, can you close us in prayer?